Suburban office vacancy tops 30 percent for the first time. And I'll talk with Crane's healthcare reporter Catherine Davis about the wave of labor organizing at academic medical centers, with Northwestern University residents voting to form a union in recent days. These residents pushing for unions shows that there is the possibility they pursue unions even once they're done with residency, right? I was talking with a labor expert at the University of Illinois who was like, you know, when you have this generation of young physicians and they are interested in organized labor, it really sets the stage for them to continue that throughout the rest of their careers. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Wednesday, January 31st. Are you sick of not being your bank's top priority? We are too. At Wintrust, we take a different approach to banking. We're proud to be your one true banking partner focused on your unique financial goals that's right in your backyard. Whether you're opening your first account, buying a home, planning for the future, or starting a business, we have tailored solutions to get you there. Stop settling and start experiencing a better way to bank at Wintrust.com. Wintrust, different approach, better results. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks, member FDIC. Medical residents and fellows at Northwestern University voted to form a union, becoming the largest of its kind in the Midwest and joining a wave of labor organizing in other academic medical centers. Joining me now to talk about it, Crane's healthcare reporter, Catherine Davis. Catherine, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Of course. So tell me what's happening at Northwestern. We talked about it a tiny bit in an earlier episode, uh, but tell me the latest. Sure. So yeah, you know, you summed it up great. Basically, fellows and residents at Northwestern University have voted to form a union, which is historical um, on a number of fronts, you know, especially like, of course, for Northwestern as an institution, they've never had a, you know, medical resident union before they've had to contend with. But at the same time, Northwestern is joining a growing group of residents across the country at academic medical institutions, many of them very prestigious, like the medical hospital associated with Harvard. You know, we've seen Stanford residents unionize as well. And my understanding is that Northwestern residents are sort of seeing the realities of the job they're doing and sort of the future of the profession and how they've described it is they want a seat at the table to have a say in their jobs and how they're doing them. So when I was speaking with residents at Northwestern, they were telling me, you know, they want to bargain for things like higher wages, better benefits, improved working conditions, and I think a a real attention and focus on work-life balance, especially for residents with children. For anyone that's not quite familiar with like what a resident is, a resident is a doctor in training who is in the phase in between medical school and becoming a full-fledged professional doctor. So depending on what specialty residents are pursuing, the time of their program may differ, but generally speaking, it's about four years or so. I did speak with a plastic surgery resident whose program goes up to seven years. So like I said, it varies, but this is a required period for residents. And, you know, they're working long hours, full time, sometimes 80 hour weeks in hospitals, uh, seeing patients and doing a lot of 
you know, the work, um, assisting nurses, uh, assisting their attendings, which is a fancy word for a doctor post-residency. And, you know, they're saying that the working conditions could be better. And that's what we've heard at other academic medical institutions across the country, which I think is what's fostering this trend. You mentioned a bit about what unionization will mean for the residents. What will that mean for Northwestern? Like any employer that has a unionized workforce, they're going to have to spend time negotiating and talking through any demands from their workers. So over the long term, you could see Northwestern having to pay more in compensation and benefits to its workers and maybe changing other aspects of the program, especially when it comes to things like work-life balance, like maybe they are um, minimizing working hours or you know, giving folks more flexibility when they need it. Um, it could take shape in a number of forms. What this union push means for Northwestern and the profession overall is just these residents pushing for unions shows that there is the possibility they pursue unions even once they're done with residency, right? I was talking with a labor expert at the University of Illinois who was like, you know, when you have this generation of young physicians and they are interested in organized labor, it really sets the stage for them to continue that throughout the rest of their careers. And so how many people are we talking about that would be covered by this union at Northwestern? Yeah, so right now, Northwestern's residents pool to about 1,300. You know, that is resident physicians and fellows, people doing fellowships for specific specialties. Um, It's one of the largest in the country. UIC residents also formed a union back in 2021, but there's just about 800 of them. And so how has unionization gone at other healthcare systems, particularly uh, university-affiliated ones? So at UIC, you know, they first unionized in 2021, and it took about two years for them to secure their first contract. In that first contract, they did secure 18.5% raises over four years, which I feel is significant. But it did take a while for them to negotiate that first contract and actually get to that point of, you know, seeing sort of the fruits of their labor, so to speak. At Stanford Healthcare, residents there unionized in 2022, and they secured a 21% compensation increase in their first contract last year. And then meanwhile, over at Mass General Brigham, that's the medical center affiliated with Harvard, they voted to form a union last year, but they have yet to negotiate a contract. And the situation there has turned a little contentious because the union is now alleging that in retaliation for forming the union, management at Mass General Brigham has changed benefits or uh, reduced benefits in some way. And so now they're fighting it out in front of the National Labor Relations Board. But I think what all this shows is that, you know, even once medical residents are able to form that union, the work is not done, of course. There's still so much to be done on just securing that first contract. And I was talking with union leaders who said, you know, that could take up to a year or more, right? Um, This could be a long haul, especially depending on what negotiations with leadership at Northwestern are like. First name is Paige, P-A-I-G-E. Last name is Hackenberger. How involved are you in the union effort? Have you been one of sort of the frontline organizers? How were you recruited into this? Or were you the one recruiting other people? Yeah, so I've been involved in some of the organizing efforts for, I guess, a little over a year now. 
the folks who began organizing before I got involved wanted to make sure that um, folks from every program had the opportunity to be involved from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what led to my um, someone reaching out to me. And so with a union, what is it that you would like to see changed or accomplished for the residents at Northwestern? What kind of things would the union be asking for or negotiating for? You know, I think we've worked so far to develop a union platform that is representative of a lot of shared concerns and also shared hopes for the trainees at Northwestern. Medical residency is unique in that um, the way that you match into a particular program is algorithmic and kind of imbued with uncertainty. And um, when folks end up at a training institution, um, you don't really have a lot of power to negotiate terms of your employment, um, and you don't even necessarily have a formal employment contract. Uh, Right now we have a letter of agreement, and so we don't really have an outline for what to expect of our um, salary. Um, We don't have an outline of specific benefits or things that are eligible for example, like reimbursement or professional development, um, or even tools, um, and licensing and exams that are required for our job. Mm -hmm. So for most, for most of us, I think part of this is just establishing a formal route where we can have a back and forth discussion that's boosted by the ability for recourse if things aren't upheld to the standard that we agree upon, but also just to give trainees who are oftentimes making critical decisions for other folks like our patients um, the ability to participate in critical decisions around our employment. When we're talking about medical residents, what kind of uh, pay scale are we looking at now for them generally, like pre-union all that? Sure. So for the 2023-2024 training year, you know, the sort of academic year we're in right now, residents at Northwestern are paid stipends ranging anywhere from $70,000 to $89,000. And that depends on how many years of residency are completed. As part of their compensation package, they're also offered benefits like health insurance, a retirement plan, and some paid time off. Um, So my understanding is, you know, physicians are particularly concerned about the stipend rates. Many of them I talked to said that they felt these wages just aren't keeping up with the cost of living and inflation. And of course, you know, for many of them who work in downtown Chicago at Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Streeterville, they say that's an especially expensive place to practice medicine. You know, many of them, since they have to spend so much time at the hospital, they want to be able to live relatively close. That probably means downtown neighborhoods or north side neighborhoods. You know, they were saying, we basically need more to, to help us do this. The other big expense for medical residents is that they've told me they have to pay out of pocket for their board exams as they are going through residency. So, you know, periodically they have to take these sort of standardized exams to make it to the next level of their residency program. And many of them tell me that Northwestern doesn't cover those costs for for residents and they have to pay for those out of pocket, which can be up to like $1,000 per test. So I think that's another point of of tension that they would like to see improved or resolved in some way. 
And as you note in reporting, technically, uh, residents are employed by the McGaw Medical Center. So that's an independent nonprofit. It's kind of a link between the medical school and the healthcare system. What has their reaction been like during unionization efforts? Since Northwestern residents first announced their intent to form a union back in December, uh, McGaw leadership has been communicating with residents via emails and memos that they've published uh, you know, right on their website. Uh, anyone can go look at exactly what they've been telling their residents. And when I reach out to McGaw directly, they say, you know, we just want to provide as much transparent information about what a union means for them. So far, McGaw's stance on the union is they say that they're respectful of the decision for residents and fellows to unionize and that they remain committed to them and, you know, providing the medical training that's required here. But what we did see them do ahead of the union vote was sort of send these emails. Some of them were titled things like, do you know how much CIR SEIU charges in dues? And another one posted on January 19th read, you can't just try out a union. When I asked a resident sort of what she was taking away from this response, she told me she felt it was, quote, super unfriendly. She says that she felt Northwestern was telling residents the union would get in the way of their work and suggesting that the union was not true representation. So what does this union push at Northwestern and the other institutions that you mentioned, what does that tell us about union organizing and healthcare overall? So, you know, I'm glad you brought this up because as I was doing this reporting, I was thinking a lot about the organizing activity we've seen even among nurses and other hospital staff in in recent months and years. You know, what I've heard from just like the residents at Northwestern as well as nurses at Northwestern, honestly, and other hospitals across the area is that COVID-19 was such a turning point for them. Um, you know, as we know, it was just such an intense time, required so much labor, so much emotional work, so much just of folks giving everything they had to address the worst public health crisis in a century. The pandemic showed so many healthcare workers across the board how important it was to have a seat at the table and to be able to negotiate their pay and their compensation and their working conditions in circumstances that were just so untenable for so many. And, you know, Northwestern residents told me this specifically that, you know, the pandemic was a turning point for them and that they, you know, sort of came out of that and they're on the back half of the pandemic, looking at ways to improve this profession moving forward so that, you know, in times of, of deep distress and in public health emergencies, they feel they have a better control over how their job is done and how they're compensated for it. All right, Catherine, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. And we will talk again soon. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, the head of Major League Baseball gives a thumbs up for a White Sox proposal to build a new stadium on the 78 property. We'll talk about that and more right after this.
Want to dive deeper into the topics you've heard here? Read the full stories and get access to all of Crane's award-winning coverage with a Crane's Chicago Business subscription. Crane's Daily Gist listeners can get 20% off a one-year Crane's Chicago Business digital subscription by visiting chicagobusiness.com slash gist and using promo code gist at checkout. Once again, to redeem this offer, visit chicagobusiness.com slash gist and enter code gist to get this deal while it lasts. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's Danny Ecker reported that more than 30% of suburban office inventory is now empty. The 30.2% vacancy rate across suburban offices as of the end of the year is up from 29.7% at the end of the third quarter, according to data from brokerage Jones Lang LaSalle. The share of empty workspace, which has now climbed to new record highs for the past 12 quarters, is up from 27.9% a year ago and 21.1% at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Ecker noted that crossing the 30% threshold is another discouraging data point for owners of suburban office buildings who will soon hit the four-year mark since the public health crisis set off and eventually normalized the remote and hybrid work environment. Ecker noted that a steady dose of tenants scaling back their office space combined with spiking interest rates over the past two years has impacted office property values and fueled a historic wave of foreclosures and other distress. Ecker further noted that while companies today have more conviction about their current office needs than they did a year ago, eliminating some of the uncertainty that hovered over the office market since 2020, there's no sign that 2024 will bring an end to the space-shedding trend, which, according to Jones Lang LaSalle, has been especially sharp among large companies with big office footprints. Also saying that for companies in the market for office space, the spiking vacancy rate still means a lot of options and plenty of leverage in negotiating with landlords. Also saying that building owners are especially aggressive with their offers to companies with good credit, dangling generous concession packages with free rent and lease-term flexibility. Yet, as Ecker noted, the pool of updated buildings with landlords willing to invest in new amenities and shell out cash for new office build-outs is somewhat limited. That narrows companies' search, especially as more tenants put a premium on leasing space that's designed for modern work trends. Ecker also noted that during previous economic downturns, most banks that seized office buildings historically sold them off at a discount rather than trying to lease them up. But with property values crushed by higher interest rates and weak demand, some lenders are choosing to make long-term plans and put money into their buildings. Also according to Jones-Lang LaSalle, net absorption, which measures the change in the amount of leased and occupied space compared with the prior period, fell by about 278,000 square feet during the fourth quarter. The firm's data also shows that that was the worst quarter of demand in more than two years and brought the total negative net absorption for 2023 to about 612,000 square feet. Ecker further noted that eliminating empty office buildings from the inventory of available workspace would help bring supply and demand more in check. And landlords got a few pieces of news on that front in recent months. One of the world's largest data center companies bought a pair of office buildings totaling about 230,000 square feet in Itasca, likely teeing them up for redevelopment. In Skokie, local developer GW Properties last month unveiled a $90 million plan to turn the distressed 355,000 square foot Old Orchard Towers office complex into 245 apartments. And in Hoffman Estates, a data center developer is now preparing to demolish about 2.4 million square feet in offices on the former Sears corporate campus, where it plans to build five large data center facilities. 
State of Illinois officials announced that it will work with Google to build a first-of-its-kind portal to bring together all children's behavioral health resources in one place as part of the state's Children's Behavioral Health Transformation Initiative. Governor J.B. Pritzker said at a press conference Tuesday morning that the portal, dubbed Beacon, will launch its first iteration this summer and will provide information for parents and guardians on what services their child is eligible for, offer a way to upload all documents a child needs to apply for support, and will expedite behavioral health care placement for children with the most pressing needs. According to Dana Weiner, director of the State Transformation Initiative, the Google-built Centralized Care Portal will coordinate the work of six state agencies. The Illinois Departments of Human Services, Healthcare and Family Services, Children and Family Services, Juvenile Justice and Public Health, and the Illinois State Board of Education. Weiner said at the conference the initiative will also work to build an inventory of available mental health services that can be updated in real time on the portal. Crane's John Asplund reported that the state is partnering with Google Public Sector to use AI and cloud computing technology to do away with what Governor Pritzker described as, quote, decentralized, difficult-to-navigate behavioral health resources scattered across different agencies, providers, and websites. Asplund further noted that Beacon is part of the Transformation Initiative's plan to accomplish five stated goals, streamlining processes to make it easier for youth and families to access services, adjusting capacity to ensure the right resources are available to young people in need, intervening earlier to prevent crises from developing, increasing accountability to ensure the state has a transparent system, and developing agility so that the system can adjust to meet the evolving needs of young people. Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton said in a statement, quote, We know that early exposure to trauma follows a child into adulthood. Her statement continued, quote, Early intervention is critical when healing mental health struggles, which is why the Children's Behavioral Health Transformation Initiative is so important, so that the system can adjust to meet the evolving needs of young people. Crane's Rachel Herzog reported that local real estate firm CA Ventures sold a 102-unit luxury high-rise in River North for almost $61 million in December, the latest asset the firm has unloaded in its recent string of sell-offs. Herzog noted that the buyer of the 26-story apartment building at 8 East Huron, an affiliate of Bethesda, Maryland-based investor Dreyfus Management, assumed CA Ventures' debt on the property, a $41 million mortgage from lender New York Life Insurance, that according to Cook County Property Records. According to information from research firm MSCI Real Assets, the deal follows the sale of CA Ventures' national senior housing portfolio and comes as the company faces litigation from investors and former executives. Herzog noted that the sale appears to be Dreyfus Management's entry into the Chicago market. The firm owns a dozen other properties in Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Washington, D.C., and while high interest rates slowed commercial property sales in just about all sectors last year, investors have expressed confidence in Chicago's multifamily market thanks to strong demand for downtown apartments. Herzog further reported that deals that allow the buyer to take on an existing mortgage on the property are also appealing in today's interest rate environment since they provide financing at a lower rate than what the buyer would likely get with a new loan. The mortgage on 8 East Huron was issued in 2016, and the outstanding balance as of December 29th was about $39.5 million, according to property records. CA Ventures paid about $6.1 million for the development site at the corner of East Huron and North State Streets in 2012, property records show, and construction was completed in 2017. 
Crane's Greg Hines reported that the head of Major League Baseball says he's all in for a White Sox proposal to build a new stadium on the 78 property on the southwest edge of the loop. And he said he believes it can be financed without new taxes. In an exclusive interview from MLB's headquarters just outside New York City, Commissioner Rob Manfred told Cranes he's been extensively briefed by Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf on the proposed development and that he likes what he's heard. He told Cranes, quote, Jerry is very bullish on the location, also saying, quote, that would be a great deal for the city of Chicago and the White Sox. Manfred said what's particularly solid about the proposal is the proximity to downtown it would bring a team that now plays several miles to the south. He said, quote, a new facility could be a game changer for the White Sox. MLB will not formally rule either way on the proposed new stadium. Manfred said he's not familiar with all the details of the proposed new facilities, such as what sort of architectural era it might evoke, but said that Reinsdorf has assured him it would require no new taxes. Hines noted in reporting that that appears to be a reference to what sources close to Reinsdorf said could involve shifting revenues from an existing 2% tax on Chicago hotel rooms to the new facility. Those tax revenues now are directed to paying debt for the construction of the Sox's current home, Guaranteed Rate Field, but all bonds will be retired by later this decade. Heinz further noted that Reinsdorf also reportedly is interested in taking advantage of an existing tax increment financing deal between the city and the 78 developer-related Midwest. Funds are slated to move Metra tracks from the center to the side of the property along Clark Street south of Roosevelt Road, construct a CTA station, and cover other infrastructure work. Manfred said MLB would not directly finance the stadium, but provide an indirect subsidy. Under league rules, stadium development costs are automatically deducted from required team revenue-sharing payments, he said, so the Sox could effectively have some of their costs covered by the league. Cranes was first to report in August that Reinsdorf and the team had become unhappy at Guaranteed Rate, where they've been overshadowed by the Northside Chicago Cubs and were mulling their options. Talks with related Midwest proceeded quickly, and after getting an initial thumbs up from Mayor Brandon Johnson, news of the pending deal leaked out. Also publicly supportive have been Chicago Federation of Labor President Rob Ryder and Alderperson Pat Dowell, whose third ward includes the 78th site. Hines noted that Dowell and others have referred to ancillary residential and commercial development that would occur along with the new baseball stadium, but details have not been released. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's healthcare reporter, Katherine Davis. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.